Well, if you haven't already done so, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at Romans 13 this morning, verses 8 through 14. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks out there, you can find our text on page 948. It's Romans 13, verses 8 through 14, page 948 in the blue Bibles, and the, the title of our sermon is Lawful Love. We are now three weeks into an eight-week series on the core values of Redeemer Baptist Church. You remember that I introduced the series um, two weeks ago by describing the uphill battle that we face in Western culture. We live in a society that is increasingly and or openly and increasingly so devoted to uh, what we called satanic, microwavable self-worship, self-worship that is marked by rampant individualism, greed, division, and ingratitude. And in the context of that society that we live in, we've been considering some implications of our mission statement. Our mission statement articulates what it is that we are committed to doing and seeing here in our midst, in our county, in Rinkin, Georgia, this town, and if the Lord wills, beyond here in 21st century America. We're seeking to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of Jesus, to baptize them and to teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. So the way we've articulated that is this. Redeemer Baptist Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. I should mention that the values that we are considering in this eight-week period here are not intended to be a mere repeating of that mission statement but they do absolutely grow out of it. They are intentionally tied to it. They define what values must characterize us if we are going to fulfill that mission. Last week, then, we considered the first of these seven values. We said that since we exist to worship God with joy, we are committing before all else to reject the allurement of self-worship and instead to offer acceptable worship to the one true and living God. And we do this with all saints on earth and in heaven, with the heavenly host, and we worship God in the method and the manner that He has prescribed in His Word. Corporately. We do this also in our families and in our own hearts as individuals. Today, we are then taking up the second value. Since we exist to love our neighbors, we need to define what that means. What does it mean to love our neighbors? The value is this, that we reject the allurement of self-worship and commit instead to demonstrate lawful love to others. Which brings us to Romans 13. Before we... Talk about Romans 13. We need to make sure that we're caught up to speed before hopping on the freeway here. Romans 13 is located in uh, 
what you could call the last major section of the book in 12 through 16. If you're in the Romans class in Sunday school, forgive the simplicity of this outline, but for time's sake, I'm going to give a very brief outline of the book. Um, Most simply, you can divide Romans into three major sections. In um, chapters 1 through 20, Paul argues that salvation is necessary for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, because we all stand condemned before God as sinners who fall short of His glory. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and we fail to live up to the righteous standards that He has revealed in His law. But then he shifts in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to the end of chapter 11 to unpack the wonders and the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great remedy of God whereby we are rescued through faith by God graciously from the penalty, power, and eventually even the presence of sin. And then in chapter 12, now having worked out what faith in Christ accomplishes for us, namely a secured, legal, personal, and familial relationship with God as our Father, both for Jews and Gentiles, Paul goes on in the rest of the letter to explain how that faith must now work itself out in our lives in accord with God's good law now that we are actually made sons and daughters of God. What does it mean, in other words, to use the law as a rule of life? Well, our focus this morning is not on the entire section there, but on chapters 12 and 13, and in particular, the end of chapter 13, where Paul calls upon Christians in this section, 12 and 13, to present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. He says this is our spiritual worship. Paul says this means, broadly speaking, in the verses that follow from the opening of chapter 12, he says this means serving others with the gifts that God has given to you. Loving one another with a brotherly affection and even forgiving those who wrong us, leaving vengeance to God. Being subject to the governing authorities whom God has ordained to be his instruments in repaying the evildoer for his crimes. And lastly, for our consideration this morning, holding law and love together, refusing to separate the two, whereby we commit to put off the works of darkness and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me read these verses in Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. And then I'll give an uh, outline for the sermon, and we'll get to work. Paul writes, Owe nothing to, sorry, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're going to consider this text under two headings this morning. First, in verses 8 through 10, we need to understand the relationship that Paul envisions between law and love. And second, verses 11 through 14, we need to heed Paul's call to put off the works of lawlessness and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So look with me in the first place in verses 8 through 10 where Paul articulates the relationship that exists between love and the law. In short, they are nonsensical without each other. Paul has said in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter that the Romans were to give everyone what is owed to them, whether it be taxes, revenue, respect, or honor. He says, let no debt remain between you. But there is one debt, when we get to verse 8, we see, there is one debt that can never be paid off. They ought always to love one another. Now, if you're thinking as a a good 21st century Westerner, immediately upon this charge, owe nothing to anyone except that you love one another, you can begin to hear a certain, perhaps, group within our culture. They're they're slurping the drool that's running down their chin at this statement. See? All we need to do is love each other. All we owe to each other is love. For instance, there's a church in Savannah has a rainbow-colored sign on its building, and it says, New Year's resolution, more love, less hate. That sounds pretty good. More love, less hate. But what does it mean to love someone? What does more love even mean? Paul says that to love another person is to fulfill the law. And again, now, now completely frothing at the mouth, the progressive tri- triumphantly says, See, if I have loved someone, then I have fulfilled the law. I don't need to worry about the commandments. What's the, how does the song go? All the world needs now is love. Sweet love. Now, if that was the last thing or the only thing Paul ever said about it, perhaps the point would stand. But he goes on here to explain what he means. He says in verse 9 that the commandments, and he names several of them, and then he says, and any other, they are summed up in this word from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, does Paul see love as some amorphous, vague feeling of niceness toward others that accepts and affirms them in all of their thoughts, words, and deeds, regardless of how vile, destructive, or reprehensible those thoughts, words, and deeds might be. Of course not. 
For Paul, more love is an expression that is utterly devoid of meaning apart from the commandments of the law. In other words, we might ask, how could someone know whether or not they are, in fact, loving another person? Has God left us in the dark as to what love is? No way. Right, because what Paul is doing here, in verse 9 in particular, he's, he's putting meat on the bones of that command to love one another. He takes us to the commandments. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. As examples. He says that these and any other commandment God has given is summed up and included in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so loving our neighbors is, again, not a warm feeling of niceness or an affirmation of their lifestyle choices or a refusal to name sinful and destructive thoughts, words, and um, actions as sinful and destructive. That's not what it is, but we need to answer it positively. It's easy to say, well, this isn't what love is. But what is love? What does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? Well, we need to consider what Paul says here by naming these commandments. And admittedly, as he makes clear here, this isn't an exhaustive list, but it is a good start. So Paul begins, don't commit adultery. Question, are you keeping the seventh commandment so long as you don't simply have sex with a person you're not married to? Well, no, of course, it's, it's much more than that. We need to remember with God's law that there are both external and internal aspects of the commands as well as positive and negative aspects. Jesus in Matthew's gospel says that to lust after another woman in your heart is to violate this command. And so, the person addicted to pornography is not keeping the seventh commandment, even if he's never touched another woman. Neither is the person who though perhaps not watching explicit material, still allows himself to watch sexually charged material, movies or shows, or allows his eyes to wander and his heart to linger while he's out in public. But again, it's not enough just to condemn sexual infidelity of various kinds and degrees, but we must, in this commandment, cultivate Sexual fidelity. So if you're married, this means that you are committed to developing a healthy, active, and generous sexual relationship with your spouse. And so the wife, who regularly puts her husband off with excuse after excuse, is not fulfilling the seventh commandment. But neither is the husband, who seeks his own pleasure whenever he wants, however he wants, regardless of the kind of man he's been the rest of the day. Of course, if you are single and not married, this means that you are staying pure. You're not allowing yourself to view inappropriate images or videos or allowing your heart to fantasize. You are instead growing to be a selfless and giving person in general. That your your yes is your yes. Your no is your no. You are an honest person of integrity and faithfulness. People can depend upon you. 
Now, this is basically unheard of in Western society today. Large swaths of our society view sex either as the ultimate good to be worshipped or as a mere commodity to be passed around like trading cards. And so what does love mean but to refuse to deify or to degrade sex? Paul goes on. He says, do not murder. Jumping back a commandment. Now, this command prohibits not only the unjust taking of human life, but, again, as we learned from Jesus clearly in Matthew, that it prohibits hatred in our hearts. We live in a culture of death. The West serves the God of death. The God of death requires blood sacrifice from us in various forms, of course. Perhaps it's mother's with bleeding wombs and empty arms, walking out of a medical clinic. Perhaps it's young men or even now women laying down their lives for the war machine as it piles up countless dead bodies around the world. Maybe it's parents and grandparents being taken from their families with the kind, gracious, and dignified act of assisted suicide. Our culture loves death and hates life. And so what do we do? Well, we refuse to harm our neighbors. We refuse to give support to those who would. In Romans 12, Paul reminds us that we may not take vengeance in our own hands, but we leave it to God. In Romans 13, he tells us that God has ordained the civil magistrate to bear the sword to punish the evildoer. And so we should pray for our civil magistrates that they would, in fact, bear the sword according to the dictates of righteousness and wisdom and in our society as we have opportunity to seek to install such magistrates. Of course, living in a fallen world, as we well know, civil magistrates often misuse the sword. And at at bottom, what we need to remember, among other things, is that they are subject to the judgment of God, both in this life and the next. So what do we do? At a minimum, we warn wicked rulers of the danger that they face, and we seek, as we have opportunity, righteous ones. So how do we love our neighbors? Well, we love our neighbors by protecting life from the womb to the tomb, if you will. But Paul goes on. He says, you shall not steal. Now, Paul really helps us to understand what theft is and what repentance of theft is in Ephesians 4. The Eighth Commandment requires us not only to leave other people's stuff alone, but according to Paul in Ephesians 4, to get an honest job, to earn our keep and generously provide for the needs of others. And so, to love our neighbors, we do that by refusing to take what doesn't belong to us and by working diligently and giving generously. 
And then he names the final commandment, the tenth commandment. He, he makes explicit that internal, external nature of God's law. Because coveting is not something that you really do externally. It might work its way out externally, but it happens in here. God is not, we must repeat, not merely interested in external behavior modifications where we just we simply go on not sleeping with anyone that we like, not murdering everyone we don't, and not taking their stuff. And as long as I've done that, then I'm good to go. Of course, it is good not to do those things. But God expects more from us. He wants our hearts, not just boxes checked off a list. I think about an unchecked covetous heart, by the way, will eventually give way to violating the rest of the commandments. Think about David as an example of this. Think about his sin in first or sorry, second Samuel eleven and twelve. Put David forth as a test case. How did it all begin? Well, besides perhaps laziness on his part, not being out at war, he's up on his roof, and what does he do? He sees Bathsheba, and he covets his neighbor's wife, breaking the tenth commandment, and the seventh commandment internally, according to Jesus. He then took what wasn't his. And so doing, broke the Eighth Commandment, and now the Seventh, externally. From there, he tried to cover up his sins, breaking the Ninth Commandment, forbidding deceit. And since that didn't work out as he had hoped, what happened? He hated his brother and murdered him, breaking the Sixth sixth Commandment. We could go on. Did David love anyone in that scenario other than himself? In fact, you could argue he didn't even love himself in that scenario. Because Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says sexual sin is one uniquely committed against your own body. And so David failed to love in any regard. And it all began with a covetous heart. And before we move on, there's something else that we need to understand about the law. God's law is a revelation of God's character. It is not an arbitrary list of commands that God thought it would be fun to impose upon an already struggling humanity. God, it's hard enough. Let me get my head above water. I don't need all these commands. But we have to ask, why was it wrong for David to covet and take his neighbor's wife? Well, it's because God is utterly faithful in all things. And so because the law reveals to us who God is and who we should be as his image bearers and then doubly as Christians, his followers, The result of faithlessness, the result of violating God's law, is so often misery in this life. And it's certain misery in the next, when done unchecked. Think about what was the result of David's failure to love, to lawfully love his neighbor. Well, 
if you read the rest of the story in 2 Samuel, and you read some of the Psalms that David wrote, you realize that it led first to a prolonged estrangement from God. But it also led to division and death within his own family. The, the baby conceived from his likely rape of Bathsheba, that baby died. Later, Tamar, his daughter, was raped by her brother Amnon. Amnon was then killed by his brother Absalom. Absalom then rebelled and ran David out of Israel, and he was eventually killed as well. And that's just a few of the things that happened because of David's sin. What are the results of our sin? They are many and disastrous. But Paul tells us here, love, in verse 10, does no wrong to a neighbor. How do I know if I'm doing wrong to my neighbor? Well, first question to ask would be, am I violating God's law? Or am I upholding it, acting in accord with it? Of course, that is not the only question that we must ask. But it is the first question that must be asked to determine whether I'm loving my neighbor as myself. You know, it's true. Much wisdom is required to apply God's Word to all of our lives. I was thinking about that yesterday and how I would describe all of this for you this morning. And my fear was that I would, I would come off too simplistic. That it would just sound like, okay, just look at the Ten Commandments and sort of in a very robotic, wooden fashion, asks the question, does it technically violate that? Nope, then I guess I'm good. But we, we live in a complicated world, one that's often much grayer than we'd like. But if we're unwilling or unable or disinterested in beginning there, is it lawful? Then we have no chance of getting to things like, is it helpful? You can't be helpful if you are directly violating God's law. There are many issues that the Bible doesn't address directly, but the principles are there. And the Spirit is here with us to help us apply those principles to daily life. And so as it concerns loving our neighbors, we must begin and stay with that question, is this lawful? Because that is what it means, at least as a beginning, to say this is fulfilling the law and loving my neighbor as myself. So that's the relationship between law and love. You can't, you can't separate them. They are held together. Look with me in verses 11 through 14 then, where we see uh, sort of the next step that Paul takes here, where he reminds his readers, the night is past, day has come. So cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, because your salvation, dear reader, has drawn nearer than when you first believed. There's an urgency to Paul's words here in verses 11 through 14. Paul says, look, it's not 2 a.m. Day is at hand. And so the things that are done in the dark... They are about to be exposed by the light. Therefore, walk properly as in the daytime. In other words, since you have entered 
he says, the eschatological reality of the dawning salvation that God is bringing into the world, you best live accordingly. And he gives us a brief list here of the kinds of things to cast off. He does it in three pairs. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And it's curious. This, is, this list, it's, it's a curious list. In the space of eight words, he commands the casting off of things like orgies and drunkenness on the one hand, and quarreling and jealousy on the other? Does that mean that these things are the same? They're in the same list. We ought to cast them off. Is, is Paul saying that these are all the same thing? Well, no. Some of these things are genuinely, on the surface at least, worse than the others. However, Please do not underestimate just how destructive quarreling and jealousy can be. Just ask Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Just ask Jacob and his multiple wives. But, also, ask Noah or Lot about the problems that come with drunkenness. Here's Paul's point in naming these things. He's highlighting one very central fact. Sin ensnares us in many forms and in many ways, and we must make intentional effort to avoid it and to cultivate holiness. Sin ensnares us in many forms and in many ways, and we must make intentional effort to avoid it and to cultivate holiness. Sin, all sin is evil. All sin is destructive. And yet, it's true, not every sin brings the same consequences as every other sin. And yet, no sin is excusable. No sin is permissible. And as we saw earlier about an unchecked covetous heart, any sin left unchecked can ruin your life. The sexually immoral person is living in darkness, as is the drunkard as is the quarreler. So he tells us to cast off the works of darkness, but verses 12 and 14 together help us here because you cannot simply cast off the deeds of darkness. You must also put on the armor of light. Or in other words, put on Jesus Christ. Right? Again, we're not talking about behavior modification. It isn't just, hey, stop smoking, just find another habit, chew gum instead. Or stop gossiping, you should start serving at the soup kitchen instead. It's cast off the works of darkness and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, at one level, it means, first and foremost, faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. That is what it means to put on Christ in one sense. But also notice that he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Savior. 
He is also Lord. And as Lord, he has every right to tell you what to do. And so while we are not talking about mere behavior modification, making some external changes, you cannot put on the Lord Jesus without doing what He commands. You can't cast off the works of darkness without replacing them with both trust in and obedience to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now notice why He says we must be about this putting on work. He says, make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 43, that uh, he says, to exercise one demon and leave the house empty, that only renders you vulnerable to a future invasion from that same spirit Uh, or seven others just like it, or worse. And so he says here, Paul says, put off the evil deeds and put on Jesus Christ. Now remember, he is not telling the Romans what they must do in order to become Christians. He's not commanding them here what law they must keep in order to earn God's favor. But he's telling them what to do because they are Christians. And yet Jesus is clear in John 14, lest any of us be tempted to presumption. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so orgies, drunkenness, sexual morality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy, and things like these, they are not befitting the Christian because they will ruin his life, but also because they speak ill of his Lord and they harm others who are made in God's image. So I want you to consider in closing here two points of application with me. The first is this, are you living in the light? Are you living in the dark? Have you cast off the works of darkness from your person, and have you put on the Lord Jesus? And that isn't, really in this context, this isn't a one-time thing. I'm going to cast off the works of darkness. I did that eight years ago, and now I'm good. Present tense, we are casting off the works of darkness every day. Making no provision for the flesh every day. Every day, putting on the armor of light to go to war with our sin. I can say with certainty, no matter your eschatological position, Salvation is nearer than when it was than it was when you entered this building this morning. Salvation is nearer you than it was at 10:30 today. Therefore, don't be caught sleeping. Wake up, sleeper. Fly to Jesus Christ and put him on. As Doug Wilson said Put him on, making sure to put your arms through both sleeves.
But secondly, are you committed to love your neighbors? Are you committed to love them according to God's law? Understanding that that is the only way to love them, to actually love them. Remember, the law has both negative and positive elements. Sure, I haven't murdered my neighbor. But if I hate him and I rejoice when he stumbles, I have murdered him in my heart. I have not lawfully loved him from the heart. James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and be filled without giving them the things needful for the body, what good is that? Scripture holds forth the inseparable relationship between the the positive and the negative, as well as the internal and external. Right? It's, It's not enough to simply refrain from taking someone's life. Nor is it enough merely to give well wishes when we are in a position to give more. Right? So, do you allow hate to run rampant in your heart? Or, maybe it's not active hate, but do you fail to meet your neighbor's needs when it is within your power to do so? Then you have not love, no matter what you refrain from doing or what you say. So, Last week, I said the ills of our day essentially stem from self-worship. So it is again. Therefore, in committing to and affirming this second value, we are committing to reject the allurement of self-worship, and instead, we are committing to love others, not on the basis of our subjective feelings, but according to God's infinite wisdom and on the basis of the gracious revelation of His will for humanity summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 